0: What's going on everyone? Choosing the correct oil can be difficult sometimes. Switching to CAMCO products can eliminate those pains. CAMCO products utilize only the highest quality of oils. You can get the same OEM quality products with the added value of a longer oil life with a superior additive package. They also offer a seal conditioner additive that will prolong the life of the shaft seal and O-rings. Did you know that Camco 717 series is top-off compatible? That's right, no need to waste oil when switching oils. Camco 717 series oil has even more benefits. You can reduce your yearly consumption of oil. You can gain more system capacity with far less oil migrating throughout piping and evaporators. You'll also reduce the kilowatt usage of your compressor since Camco 717 series has twice the lubricity of traditional napthenic oils. Camco products are tested, proven, and trusted to outperform many other oils for over 35 years. They offer quicker lead times, better pricing, and same-day shipping to support the industry. Reach out to your local distributor and let Camco solve your lubrication needs. Tell them that Josh from Inside the Pipe sent you. Your facility operations require that you have technicians that are capable of keeping your process moving forward. Fricktraining.com solves a lot of those issues. Have the need to constantly send guys out for training? Do you have a high turnover? Have techs that are constantly busy can't send them to startup training? Need yearly credit hours for your certifications? Crest Ciro, Frick has an effective training program for all your needs. Give Fricktraining.com a try. Online training
1: done right. Welcome to Inside the Pipe, the industrial refrigeration podcast that covers the work, lifestyle, and hazards of a career in natural refrigeration, where we love the smell of ammonia and hate the smell of sulfur. Here's your host, Joshua Reese.
0: What is going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to Inside the Pipe. I am your host, Joshua Reese. And I'm glad that you can be here today, wherever you're listening, day or night. I know some of you guys um, on those night shifts We're with you, fellas. We were there one day or, or you know, one time in the past as well. Night shift really sucks. Um, if you are on nights, you need to be working your way to a, a day shift position. It is awful for you switching back and forth um, like that. Did you know that there's a like 23% increase in heart attacks when that when people change their sleep schedule just one hour so you've got daylight savings times where, reti- where where you gain an hour and you lose an hour Well when you gain an hour of sleep there's like a 20 something percent, Decrease in heart attacks. Well, when you lose the hour of sleep, there is the, uh, almost the exact same correlation. It's like 22 or 23% um increase in heart attack so when you it it is it's very stressful on your body when you're working nights like that you know some service guys you know you guys we've we've had them long pump outs where you're just there until it's done you know i've i've had a i had one project one time that was 40 hours straight literally 40 hours from the time i got to the site to the time that i was able to leave and that's just not healthy um so i don't really know how i got on that kick but Today, we've got a really cool podcast. Um, this was one that I've been trying to hook up for a very long time. Um, it's, it's with Steve Koski with Cascade Energy. Um, and this guy is a wealth of knowledge. Um, he's the one that shows up at the facility, takes a look at everything, and then gives them suggestions on what all to change to um to decrease their kilowatt usage. And you know, let me just say this. When when you learn all the technical stuff that you have to learn, like let's just say two or three years into the field, you've been doing it for a couple of years. Your very next focus should be kilowatt usage. Right? We, we have a duty to make sure that this equipment is running as efficiently as possible. That means we're achieving temperature like we're supposed to in the quickest way possible. We're maintaining temperatures great. We're doing all that. There is so much stuff we can do when it comes to kilowatt usage and reducing kilowatt usage. Um, so I'm, I'm not really going to get into all that right now. Um, I think that we should just go ahead and get into the podcast um, and let Steve do his talking. All right, here we go. Steve, what's going on, man?
1: It's another beautiful Tuesday in paradise. (laughs) Yeah, it
0: Um, it is. It is raining like crazy right now. The spring is here, finally.
1: You're in Kentucky?
0: I am in Tennessee.
1: Tennessee, okay. Yeah. I'm in Utah. It's starting to act like spring, but then it gets cold again, and it acts like spring again.
0: How how bad is the weather up there? Does it get cold like in the winter? Does it get really cold?
1: Not super bad. So we'll have a week that's in the tens or teens, maybe. Yeah. But we don't. It's not like some places where it's super bitter cold for a super long time. We we get a week in the teens at night, oh. and then we're kind of done with it.
0: Man, that's nice. Yeah, that's kind of similar and to and here. It's,
1: it's dry. So oh, Utah yeah, well, low humidity is dry. So.
0: Yeah. Well, I don't, I don't get that. I, I get all the nasty humidity and, and the cold temperatures that come along with it. It, it feels colder, you know, when, when it's it, the real temperature is probably like tilt, or the field temperature is probably about 10 degrees lower than what, you know, yes. what we got when you get on.
1: sick and when it's cold and humid, you stay sick.
0: Yeah. No kidding. Um, So let me ask you this. This is probably one of the interviews that I've wanted for, for the longest time. When I first started started setting up interviews for the podcast, I reached out to someone at Cascade and it got bounced around. I didn't realize that you guys were as big as y'all are, um, but it, 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 I, I have been really excited. Um, I know that you guys do a lot of great work. I've, uh, I, like our discussion before I read your, the Cascade energy book, which I would recommend to anybody that's in ammonia refrigeration. Um, but how, how'd you get where you're at?
1: Let's see. I've been with Cascade Energy for 21 years. I worked for a steel mill before that, and the steel mill was dying, and I wanted to get out, and Cascade hired me, and it's been been a great ride ever since. Um, wow, I've been that's basically – yeah, it's a, a while. Smart. 21 years is yeah. <laughs> a while. Yeah.
0: Yeah, um, I didn't uh, – that's I a w- big change between you went from steel to, to conserving energy.
1: Yeah. And I've been a project engineer basically the whole time. About the last year, I've been a technical training lead. So putting a lot of the stuff I know into trainings. And so, yeah, it's a good time for you to have this call. Yeah, exactly yeah, what no I'm kidding. About.
0: Let me ask you this. You walk into an engine room or, or onto a, a site, What is what are the main things, your main go-tos, like whenever you're looking for, um, you know, issues with with how the facilities are running.
1: Okay. Well, there's a lot of different types of situations I might be in walking into a system, but let's say I'm on some sort of a tune-up where I'm going to be there for three or four days. Mm -hmm. I mean the first thing I want is a big tour of the whole place. I want to see the top and the bottom. I want to walk all the walk down all the docks, go in all the rooms. I want to go up to the roof and see the condensers. I want to walk through the compressor room. I want to just see all the Walk, walk the yeah. whole perimeter, the ups and downs. And then probably my first question, well, you, usually you see some really obvious stuff. You're like, yeah. what the hell is going on over there? <laughs> yeah. And so you talk about that for a while. And then, and then once you kind of settle down, you're like, all right, what are your room temperature set points? Yep. And what's your suction temperature? What's your suction pressure set point? And what's your kind of minimum condensing pressure? Like, what Mm -hmm. do you do in the middle of the winter? Are you holding your head up at 130 pounds? Or because, you know, when you're talking about reducing refrigeration energy saving, one of the main places you can do it is at the compressors. I mean, the compressors are using 70, 75% of the power of the refrigeration system. So if we can get, if we can bring the suction up or bring the head down, we're going to save, we're going to quote unquote reduce the lift. And save power.
0: So what's, let's get into lift. Can you like just kind of ex, explain that?
1: Lift is kind of the temperature difference between suction and condensing, your low side and your high side, or anything in your high side. It's, and yeah. I like to think of it, we like to think of it in temperature because things are quite linear. Yeah. In temperature, you can use kind of some rules of thumb mm-hmm. if you do it in temperature. If you do it in pressure, course, then your rules have to be different for every refrigerant. Yeah, but if you do so, it in temperature, it's about the same.
0: Hmm. So you're not. So you. So which would which would equate to like the compression ratio, essentially, is what you're looking at. But in in temperature.
1: But compression ratio is also can be a little misleading if you just bring it all back to get pull out your ammonia tables or whatever mm-hmm. refrigerant you're you're working with and bring it all back to temperature, then you can guesstimate at your energy savings pretty well using temperature so um so yeah somebody who's running a minus 20 degree suction on a zero degree freezer and let's say they've got in their let's say they got some valve groups that aren't performing very well they got some failed valves or they got some dead fans Mm
0: -hmm.
1: or something and they get those cleaned up and they can go from minus 20 to minus 15 or minus 12 or something like that well then we've picked up a bunch, you know, we we just reduced our lift by, let's say we go from minus 20 to minus 10. Let's let's use round numbers. Okay. So that was, we just reduced our lift by 10 degrees Mm -hmm. and there's kind of a rule of thumb on the low side. You, you can get 2%, you can get as much as 2% savings for every degree you can bring up your saturated suction temperature. 2%. Yeah. As Man. much as 2%. Now, sometimes yeah. you don't get all 2% because if you're using, if you're using slide valve control, mm-hmm. you, what, and, you, and you're not going to change compressors, you might just put the compressor that's operating further into part load, yeah. which does, reduces it, does reduce its power, but it doesn't reduce its power as much as if it was using speed control. Yeah. So well, yeah, you can, get, you can get 2% on the low side, but it's not guaranteed.
0: So when you guys go in, do y'all actually set uh, like? How, do you go in there and you set? Um, like, would you control the slide valve? Like, do you do you change the settings under them whenever y'all go in and do one of the tune-ups or whatever?
1: Oh no, I mean we would talk with the site about it. You know, what's your history? Why are you running like this? Have you ever tried this? What if we? Um, and sometimes sometimes they know. They're like, no, we we try that. We tried that yeah. a month ago, and we have this problem. And then, okay, then the, what do we got to do to overcome that barrier? Mm-hmm. Is, do we got six fans out in that room? Do we got a valve group that's, you know, do we have two evaporators in that room that are shut off because they got, they got screwed up valves and no one's budgeted, you know, no one will give you the time or the budget to go up and change the valves?
0: Hmm. So when Cascade comes in, you're not in like you're not going in there and messing with set points or anything like that. You're y'all. It's all based off of a recommendation.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, the last thing you want is some outside person coming in and screwing with your system and upsetting. That, that it, you is know. true. So, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> that makes people very nervous. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah, Nobody plus you don't know resolution. that kind of like what you talked about a second ago where there are like those nuances of a system where they like I've I mean I've walked in this has actually happened to me a lot. My my, my main focus is kilowatt usage when I go into a customers because I know that's where I can be the most impactful. Like I can give you I can give you something at that point and it could be uh, something that you that's quantifiable. You can see the savings. So that, that's something that I'm I, when I go into a facility, I always push. And but what I have learned throughout the years is that you do run into, into situations like that to where you make an adjustment that you think was uh, the correct adjustment and then it just wreaks havoc. You know, I'm getting called that night because of the system shut down and it flooded back, or something like that. And and so, yep. ammonia refrigeration is touchy. It is very, you have to be careful, and there and you you never know what kind of reverse action is gonna gonna happen from make, changing a set point.
1: Exactly, you got to do things carefully and slowly, and yeah. You don't, yeah. The last thing you want to do is upset someone and get a call on the upset something and get a call in the middle of the night. I mean, it's happened because sometimes you got to try things. Like if you're, if you're, I've been to places that are where the operators are afraid of their system. Like mm. nobody is really operating that system. They're all scared to death of it. And I'm yeah. like, well, let's shut this compressor and start that one up. And they're like, can you wait till three 30 when I'm not here? <laughs> I'm like, yeah. you, you're, you're afraid to stop and start a compressor like who who's yeah. the operator here? Like is the system running you? or are you running your system? Yeah, that that all breaks down to training. Um
0: you know that's that's one of the biggest things that you know your your team is only good at as good as your training. And if you've got operators that are actually like that, that's not a team that's being invested in. i, I have right. I have a hard time yeah. with, with that. I, I think that I, I think that we don't have there. I, I'm a huge supporter of getting as much training as you possibly can get in, um, you know, because it does make a difference with how these systems are operating. We need to, these guys need to know exactly what they're doing because it is such a large. I, that was one of the questions I was going to ask you. What percentage of like a plant's total kilowatt usage is the refrigeration system? Could, do we, do you know around about?
1: So if it's a if it's your typical like grocery store food service refrigerated warehouse or maybe even uh, if it's uh, let's say it's yeah food service type warehouse it's about half maybe half yeah. of okay. your electrical power it could be a little more it could be a little less if it's a big ice cream plant it's probably less there's more pump power lights auxiliary mm-hmm. systems so at some big processors even like cattle processors the refrigeration system might only be a third or a quarter oh, wow. they could have pretty good they could have pretty high amount of power doing water treatment and mm-hmm. you know hydraulics and other yeah. things so but the high about the highest i've ever seen it is like in a public refrigerated warehouse where they got lights they got battery charging they have a small office with you know like two rooftop HVAC units mm-hmm. and those systems can be like maybe 80% is refrigeration. Oh. And then the other, and then the other 20% is, you know, battery charging and lights yeah. and HVAC. Like for and, cold
0: uh, storage, like it, quite, it, a, quite often. Yeah. Cause I think that mine yep, was you probably be close. High. Yeah. I was about like 75% at, at a company I worked for and I had, we, we, it, that was the best system that I've I've ever worked on because I had CTs on everything, so I I could get immediate feedback. Not immediate, you know. Obviously, you need a you know some some time. I mean, there's a bunch of things that factor in it, like you know ambient temperature and stuff like that. But I could. I could trend all of that stuff. And when I made a change, I would go back in a week and I would see whether it increased my kilowatt usage or it, it decreased. So it was really instant feedback that I was able to adju- adjust a system, you know, the way it was s- supposed to be. Um, so that that's, that's not s- typical. That's the only place, to, even still to this day, that I've seen that did that.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. Do you have- we don't have any, anything- we Well, we have a product called Sensei, Energy Sensei, where mm-hmm. we just put something on the meter. We do, actually don't put CTs on all the individual parts and pieces. We just put one on the whole meter. And then you can go back, you know, 15 minutes later, you can go back and see what happened. Or you can compare this week over last week or this week over the same week a year ago. Um, yeah. Things like that. But yeah, yours, you're definitely like the dream operator who... Has the controls yeah. and the the, the care about to go mm-hmm. make to all oh, willing dude. to make changes
0: yes well that was my main concern i was going through the cress, the the rita um the certified energy specialist or whatever and i so i just took a huge interest in i wanted to make sure that i was setting my plan up properly and that i could i, I once i learned or gained that knowledge I wanted to go back and start tweaking things. And and because I had all those CTs, I got really great feedback almost immediately. Like I could wait for a year and then I could compare it to the last year. Like I could find a week that had the same average temperature and, and compare the data and tell yeah. if I had dropped or not. So, but yep. thousands of CTs, they're uh, all yeah. over the building. I mean, and CTs everything. are cheap.
1: So well, that's, that's yeah. great. Yeah. yeah. CTs There's are a, 30 bucks.
0: It was a grid point system. Have you ever heard of grid point? I haven't. No. Okay. Well, that's I, every, to- or uh, I'm not going to say the name. Um, but anyways, every facility that they have has these um, and it, man, it's just great information. And the one thing that I've enjoyed out of it, it was that the instant feedback. So I could tell how, much savings were coming from you know if i raise the suction pressure even if i started um adjusting expansion valves you know so there there was i mean it was minimal but yeah. it was still noticeable let's talk about That's vfds cool. compressors condensers evaporators so let's, evaporators. let's finish, our,
1: let's, so let's oh, finish okay. up our lift we got the low side so okay. we're gonna we couldn't get as much as well when you raise the suction pressure on a screw. What you really do is you increase the capacity a lot. You actually mm-hmm. will increase the full load power, but you're increasing the capacity even more because, you know, the molecules are closer together. So we're just moving more refrigerant with every, yeah. every, every turn of the screw. So which allows you to either operate at a reduced load, you know, unload the slide valve, or if we are using speed control to slow down, or maybe even switch to a smaller compressor.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I've seen a handful of cases where somebody's operating a storage facility with a 250 horsepower compressor at a colder than necessary suction. Mm-hmm. And they're able to clean some things up and go from a 200 to a 250 to like a 200 horse compressor that they already have. Mm-hmm. And wow, boom, now all of a sudden, you know, real power savings, big, you know, big jump in the bill. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's the suction side. Um, the high side, we, we get about a percent and a half savings per degree. We can reduce our saturated condensing temperature. And again, you know, we've got to think in temperature, not in pressure. Mm-hmm. And that mostly comes not from changing compressors. The, the amps are just lower. You know, you, you yeah. bring the head down, the amps just come down on their own mm-hmm. and you usually don't have to change the compressor mix. The compressor capacity doesn't, doesn't change much mm-hmm. with condensing pressure. So, Okay enough of the lift let's talk about what's the fan well we we already know vfts save energy on compressors and you're i sound I, i've listened to all your shows i, I have love you that. so I, I know you're on board with the with the compressor VFDs.
0: yes i am i'm not i'm not a fan of evaporator VFDs. i i'm not i, I don't I, let me take and that con- back
1: condenser fan vfts
0: yeah. Condenser fans fine. I don't oh, know, It's the evaporator. It's the evaporator fan motors that I don't like because there is an issue that it does cause that's overlooked because of the savings, which I'm, which I'm okay with. I had a, I had an identical building, um, identical, same footprint, everything, same amount of compressors, tonnage, all of it. And they, uh, the only difference between the two buildings is they had VFDs and I didn't. And it was okay. a, a massive, decrease in kilowatt usage but there i on the mechanical side of things there's issues with it it's it's common knowledge that if you slow a fan down you're you we have hand expansion valves that are sitting there feeding the unit at at whatever rate it's feeding it and so when you reduce that that fan speed that that rate doesn't change. It's still shoving liquid in just as fast as, as it is whenever it's running at 100%. So I've ran into a lot of flood back issues and a lot of, especially if the system shuts down, like the surge volumes are much larger coming back to the recirculator versus if you're running at full speed and then you have something that you can adjust, you know, you can adjust the hand expansion because the speed never changes.
1: Yeah. And I've seen that. I've seen systems high level when they shut down and come back. So the one way that that seems to be around that, if your vessels are marginally sized, Mm -hmm. is to just put in a a shutdown timer. So if the zone hits temperature, let that fan run at minimum speed for, I don't know, at 40% or 50% speed, that fan's barely using any power. So let's just leave mm-hmm. it on. Let's let it burn whatever ammonia is in the coil out for the next half hour. And some places leave them on forever. They're like, I don't ever want you to shut off. I, don't, I think after a half hour, we could probably, probably burn out a fair amount of the mm-hmm. ammonia. We could probably shut the, shut the fan off yeah. if the room's at temperature. But, so, I mean, and that's the solution. It seems to work everywhere. Because you're right. Yeah, you know, If you have that coil perfectly tuned in at 60 hertz fan speed, and then you're, you're doing most of your cooling down at, uh, let's see, 24 hertz would be 40% speed. So let's, let's say you're doing most of your cooling at two-thirds speed, three-quarters speed. Mm-hmm. Well, it's overfeeding a little bit. It's not perfect. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah. So <laughs> the other thing you can do is, like, if you've got a room that meets temperature, well, let's not let it go. Let's not let that, the fans in that room go 60 hertz. Let's put the maximum at 50. Mm-hmm. hertz or what, whatever whatever will still maintain that room temperature in hot in hot weather and then you would you know in a perfect world you'd have time and you'd go adjust your hand expansion valves for 50 hertz yeah but i so i heard your discussion a few shows ago about tuning hand expansion valves yeah and it's a little different from i've i've only done it two or three times and it was time consuming and a pain in the ass and it was similar to your <laughs> method except we drop. Uh, a dual temperature probe logger. You know, we, mm-hmm. we zip tie a temperature probe on the return side of the coil, and then we zip tie one to the cage on the front of the coil.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so we're logging the the delta T of the air coming through the coil. And then you do what you say. Yeah, you start wherever you want to start. You know, you want to start wide open or do you want to start an eighth of a turn open? Yeah. And you adjust it and then you let it sit there for 15 minutes or something because if, mm-hmm. if you look right now well, well things got to settle out for a while yep and so you, you do all these changes and man it's just so i've done it a few times and then we recommend that the sites go back and and you know do it and do it, do for it again more but i just don't think it ever happens because it's so time consuming do you do you,
0: no. do, you think so, do it? no i don't i, I think i mean i well I don't, I think the majority of the people don't do it. And I think that that's really where there could be a lot, because even, even tuning your hand expansion valves can't, you know, if you've got the evaporator running like it's supposed to, it will run less time. And and by the way, that was probably the best suggestion that you talked about, like setting your hand expansion to 50. Like if you can figure out what that, that VFD speed at the average of it, that is probably the best solution that I've ever heard. I, I, so, and that, that makes sense to me, you know, as far, as far as doing that, at least stopping some of that overfeeding.
1: Yeah. And so, you know, in a perfect world, you know, it bothers me too, to overfeed a coil in a perfect world. I'd want some sort of a sensor that matched my refrigerant flow and my airflow and kept me, you know, if I, if I have a two to one coil, Mm -hmm. I'd want two to one, whether I'm at full Uh, whether I'm at hundred percent fan speed or whether I'm at 40% fan speed, I'd still like to have kind of that same feed ratio, whatever the design is. And actually I don't really care what it is because what I care most about is I want the biggest Delta T. Oh, okay. Yeah. If my air is coming in at minus 10 and it's coming out at minus five and I can adjust that. So it comes in at minus 10 and, Oh, no wait yeah am I thinking about if it's coming in at minus five goes out at minus ten yeah I'm i'm, I'm dropping at five degrees yeah if i could if I could adjust that hand expansion valve to give me six degrees, well that's a twenty percent improvement that's twenty percent less time that yeah, that fan's got to remain that unit's got to remain in cooling or mm-hmm. or you know twenty percent less fan speed it could operate with so actually I, I don't <laughs> in the end yeah. if we had temperature probes and we could like have it continually adjust the liquid feed and the fan speed to give us the biggest the biggest split and the lowest lowest fan speed that would be awesome
0: yeah, I have done that before. So, here here's the problems that I ran in with doing that when I've done it in the past. And I and this I only I, I so it's just an educated guess of why it was doing it, but the one thing that I notice is is the lower you, when you get close to the temperature that you are the room temperature um or you know, let's just say it's set at -20 degrees, you can start getting it, it, the the TD at least from what I've seen gets smaller. As you get closer to the the room temperature, like, so I don't know. And again, I'm not an expert. This is something that I've done in the past. Um, But I noticed that the closer I was to the room temperature, the smaller the TD was across the coil. So if you have a minus 20 degree room, except for minus 20 and you're at minus 20, are you still seeing those TDs? Like when you adjust the hand expansion valve, you can see it coming in at minus 20 and going out at minus 25 or whatever it may be whatever it may be uh,
1: I I don't know that I've done enough testing you might be beyond my
0: Okay all no. right no that when you do no. it So What's
1: that? when I have when the suction is much much colder than the room you definitely get a much bigger yes. delta T through the coil
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah if you're if you're running a 0 degree room with a -20 suction you're going to see like maybe a 10 degree change yeah. coming through that coil when you run yeah. a zero degree room with a minus six degree suction you know yeah you're not I going mean, to the have nearly this
0: yeah Uh, That was, the TD is something, and I, and I, the only reason I didn't set, because that, when I originally went to set expansion valves, when I was just trying to figure it out on my own, that's what I was doing. I was trying to get a TD across the coil. But what I noticed was, is when I was, I had to, you could, you can get a good TD if you're, if you're dropping the room temperature down. So let's just say you needed minus 10 and it's zero degrees in there. Or you're running a, a blast or something like that. You, it, but the, uh, when you get closer to that temperature, that that TD shrinks, at least in in my from what I've seen. Oh yeah. So yeah. So uh, I didn't that. That's why the method that I uh, like trying to get superheat. Like I, the the problem is is that not a lot of ammonia guys know what superheat is. They don't really dip, like. So if you have a freon background or a halocarbon background, you use superheat and subcooling. Um, typically most like operators and, and it's, there may be some guys out there that do know it. I'm not saying that it's, but
1: they, they that's a really good, that's a really good argument for your system because my system depends on a whole lot of the particulars. How big is my approach, my TD?
0: yeah.
1: And if the, you know, the colder that is, yeah. So that, that interferes with it. Um, Mm -hmm. if your room's close, if your room's, let's say they're, they're picking out of the room and the, the doors open and close and open and close the whole time and you do another yep. test on a, on a Saturday and nobody's there. Well, mm-hmm. you're going to get different results. The other thing that sucks about my method is if, let's say you start doing the test and there's no frost on the coil, mm-hmm. but by the time you make your last adjustment, your coil's all frosted up. Well, how good is it comparing the first 15 minutes with the last 15 minutes? You got yeah. 10% frost versus like 90% frost. Mm -hmm. Well, of course the coil is going to perform differently. So
0: yeah, there's a ton that, and that's why I like the superheat method. I I don't, I like gaining, getting superheat and then, and then bringing it back down to, to where it's at zero or as close. Like to me, if I were to, if I could build a perfect system, if I engine, I'm not an engineer, but if someone just wanted me to do it, I, I, and I wanted to put VFDs in. I would put some way to meter, the liquid, which could either be done by like a level column, like a, a, you know, a level probe going into the evaporator, the suction header, or measuring, getting superheat. Because I know that the majority of the evaporators out there are either overfeeding or underfeeding. Nobody's really paying attention to what that adjustment should be. And, you, you know, that is the only way for me, or at least as far as I'm concerned, to control it is that you have to meter that liquid going in there, you know, and, and I've just never been a fan of it. And I do yeah. know that it's a massive reduction, but I think it does cause, which I guess maybe the, maybe the issues don't outweigh the benefits
1: yeah you know. yeah it, it 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 bothers me the concept bothers me too not having the correct thing but yeah. you go to a facility that has vfds on all their fans and they've dropped their fan power by like two-thirds yeah. their fan power is just just almost you know it's not mm-hmm. gone but it's much much smaller than it was and it's typically like vfds will give you maybe half of the power over the course of a year of fan cycling mm-hmm. so fan cycling I mean, sometimes you go to a place that's, especially people with like a Freon background, they're like, fan cycling? Oh my God, the the earth's coming to an end. We can't shut the fans <laughs> off. Yeah, and They're like, no, you can shut the fans off. People do it all <laughs> over the country all the time and have done it for decades. Yeah. Like, you'll be all right. And they're yeah. like, but oh, we're going to get a hotspot. We're going to get a hotspot. I'm like, it, th- you know, that's unlikely, but it's entirely possible. And there's a yeah. thing called a stir cycle. Yeah. If you think you're if you think you're really suffering from a hot spot somewhere and the fans have been off for a half hour, then let's kick them on for five minutes and make you feel mm-hmm. better, you know, yep, but the warm air comes to the top of the room, yep, and it's gonna bring the fan back into cooling, which is mm-hmm. gonna stir the room up again, so yep. you're probably gonna be okay, yeah, if you're nervous I've,
0: we i I've never really seen i have. On the like automated buildings, are you doing any of the automated buildings? Have you been in a facility like that, like that's got like WeTron or Vtron or?
1: Yeah, yeah, a few of them. Yeah,
0: those. I do. I I did have problems with. It wasn't hot spots, but because of uh, which, again, that's how we solved it was fan swirl. But I did notice that there was some humidity in certain areas um, starting to stack up. But the physical volume of those, you know, the cubic footage of those buildings are insane. Like, I mean, some of these things are 90 foot, like have 90 foot cranes in them.
1: Yeah. And I've seen places that did need stir cycle. I was, I remember a cooler that was really, really long and had a really, really low ceiling. Uh-huh. It only had like a twelve foot ceiling, and it was like one hundred and fifty feet long. And I'm like, yeah, you're gonna you're gonna have to stir that up, right? You're gonna have to blow some fresh air down to the other end of that room, yeah, every half hour or something because you're not picking up the t- far end of that room temperature with the mm-hmm. probe that's on the back of your coil one hundred and seventy yeah. feet away,
0: yeah
1: with a twelve foot ceiling, you know, that's not going to work, <laughs> yeah, And so, yeah, stir, I mean, there are definitely times where stir is needed, but yeah, but and then, and then you go into other places and They're like, well, we've been cycling fans for 50 years here, you know?
0: (laughs) Yeah. It makes a difference. cycling fans is free. Yeah. Yeah, I wonder what the difference would be between VFDs. I wonder what the savings would be with putting VFDs on them to just cycling them off.
1: VFDs. So as a gut level, VFDs Mm -hmm. use about half of the power as what fan cycling uses. So if you have a system that, let's say, well... You know, old school was just run refrigeration fans all the time and just turn the liquid solenoid on and off. Mm-hmm. So let's say that's 100% fan power. And let's say with fan cycling, you could go to 60% fan power. So over the course of the year, the fan, all the fans, you add them all up, divide by whatever, you get 60%. Mm-hmm. Well, if you were to put VFDs in there, they'll probably average about 30% of oh, fan wow. power. That's my, that's my gut level check. Yeah. I, I mean I, that's probably that's just a starting point as a as a guess. Mm-hmm. Now, the problem sometimes that problem is is that if you're already fan cycling to go from 60 to 30% fan power,
0: yeah.
1: That's not quite enough to pay for all the VFDs and control upgrades you got to do. Yeah. Which because is because you're already you've already saved 40% of your fan power, so so to save just get another 30%, the economics yeah. might not be there.
0: What do you think but about if new VFD? Con- oh, I'm sorry. But if,
1: it's new, uh, but if it's new construction, then maybe it is. You know, instead yeah. of buying a contactor, we put in a VFD, and we're running wires anyway. Yeah, I say that, but then sometimes I see quotes on new construction projects, and the add the price adders they put in for VFDs just blows me away. I'm like come on guys it's not this much <laughs> like now are we trying to get rich all at once they're they're paying for the service tech to go out there and
0: finger that machine until he get any till he gets it all figured out <laughs> oh, i mean it is a pain God. i've had to set them up had to set s- systems up that, and had a and this was when it was f- first started when you started seeing vfds a little bit more and man as far as starting them up it's a pain it's a pain to get in there and you have to program every single one of them. And if you got 200 of them on site, you know, you get, but you get good at it, but it's still annoying. To, and there's a lot of parameters in some of these, you know, if you're talking yeah. about like a power flex or, or something Hopefully like that. You
1: can just take the faceplate off one, plug it on the other one and just say, hit like accept all parameters.
0: Yeah, I didn't, I never did that. I went, I went to each individual one, which I didn't, I, I do know that you can, not like, I do know that you can do that. I don't, I mean, I do know that now, um, but, I, I, but I, it, there's a lot that goes into doing them. Plus, if you don't install them close, you know, there's a lot of issues. We had a lot of issues where we had to go back and put the, there's uh, grounding bushings on. Oh yeah. Yeah. Because we, yeah. we kept burning up a bunch of motors.
1: Yep. BFTs are not without their issues but set up well they can save they can save a bunch of power and they can be worth it but it it, that comes back to the argument like fan cycling is is probably free like it's probably already included on your control system all you got to do is turn it on yeah well i've sold control
0: systems that way because they didn't have it that is a good way to get it done is just to upgrade the control system
1: (laughs) yeah yep
0: What's your, uh, what's your thoughts on compressor VFDs?
1: Uh, I love them. They, you know, ideally, like I think you even said this, but in a perfect world, we'd have, you know, speed control on every suction and we'd have, you know, wh- whichever compressors doing our trimming would be using speed control. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if on our high side suction, we got four compressors on three of them are, are fixed speed compressors at a hundred percent slide valve. And then we have. A fourth compressor, you know, in its speed range, doing its thing, holding our holding our suction. But
0: is there a major benefit in it? Do you see uh, like a just massive power? Killer? I mean,
1: the only, the the power is really the only benefit, and that's because slide valve part load on the screws is just not great. You know, on the higher the lift, the worse your part load performance is with your slide valve. Like if you know. Yeah. If you're running some sort of a production freezer, you know, at minus 50 suction all the way to condensing. Yeah. I mean, that compressor is going to use like 60% power, 70% wow. power at 0% slide valve. It's going to be terrible. Yeah. Uh, whereas if it's, if it's just a booster compressor or a high-stage compressor, its part load not going to be nearly as bad with slide yeah. valve control.
0: Do you normally see them like to where they load up? See that—that's the problem that I've seen it. I—I I, I would not want to mess with the speed until my my capacity was at a hundred percent, and then if you need, and then maybe to, to try to control the suction pressure, ramping it down, and then if and then at the bare minimum, once you get to a certain point, and it just you're 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 still going down in suction pressure, you know, unloaded at that point. But I—I I did. Yeah. I'm I've seen it to where they've they were running you know 40 hertz at 25% slide valve oh, and i'm just like yeah. man yeah there's not you're yeah. really I, that that's very hard to control
1: yeah in the early days of compressor vfds like 15 years ago it seemed like half of them were screwed up yes but now it's it's hard to find them screwed up like people pretty much all understand we want to slow down with speed first and then if we need less suction. If we're our, we're going to go all the way down to minimum speed and then we're going to start unloading the slide. valve. Yeah. And I, man, I haven't found anyone that's had that very screwed up for a while. I'm not saying that they're not hiding out there, but
0: it, me neither. I haven't. I mean, this was probably about that probably about 10 or 15 years ago where I, and so that's funny. I, you know, you kind of get a bad taste and I haven't ran across, a whole lot of um, VFDs on compressors, especially in my area that I work in. So, you know, I still have that that idea in the back of my head that, oh, they suck, but I, in all honesty, I haven't given them a, a fair shot.
1: So here's the thing I've seen a couple times recently is where uh, someone will have a VFD on an economized compressor, and they'll slow the compressor down, and they start to get some flutter on the check valve in the economizer line. Yeah. And all of a sudden the economizer line, I mean, it sounds like, it sounds terrible. And you're like, oh, whatever that is, we got to stop that. Cause it sounds, mm. something's going to break. Like yeah. this is loud and it's wrong. Like we're yeah. just not going to put up with this. Yeah. So I have seen that a couple times in the last few years where economizing uh, or, you know, speed control on an economized compressor, they haven't been able to use the low, you know, the, 50% yeah. or maybe even 40% minimum speed mm-hmm. that you can often get with a retrofit situation. They've had to bump it up a little bit to where that, that side yeah. port doesn't flutter. Or maybe they kill, would you just kill the flutter? Like you could put, I mean.
0: I don't know. So I've. People I've, kill the,
1: economizers with a slide valve position, but I've never yes. heard of them killing it with speed.
0: Yeah. So that's what, actually, that's exactly where my head was just at. Cause I was like, well, I wonder how that would work with a VFD. Like, cause you, I don't, I wouldn't, I mean, a lot of them, like I've got a, a customer that, that their, their whole high stages is on it is, is the economized economizer. So I, you know, in those kind of instances, I wonder how it, how it would hold up and what would be the control scenario? Like, would you go, would it, would it have to be both? Like it's got to be at least a certain percentage of speed, but then, I mean, that would, that would screw up your, you know, if you're so they're using cooling, economy,
1: like docks with the high side,
0: all their high stage is all on the economizer. They've got a lot of low temperature stuff, but they're, it's probably equal with high stage and it all, I mean, it works well. They do, they've got a, uh, they've got a reset on site that will cycle on and off just in case, but it never does. The economizers handle it very well. Okay. Yeah, and then they also do have some funky stuff going on. They've got a, a bypass regulator dumping back into the the low stage, which is which goes directly to the suction of the compressor. So if okay. pressure gets so up, if
1: they lost too much economizing. It'll just dump to the low to yes. the low side and still still yes. handle the loads. Okay.
0: Yeah, so it was said, I mean, the, the, the system I'm talking about is kind of funky and it's just been, you know, the problem, it's great when you get a system that is designed for, you know, it's a cold storage or even a manufacturing plant where there may be some future expansion planned, but for the most part, everything is designed as it should be. But then you get into some of these plants that are just added on and added on and added on and added on and added on and, not, and a lot of stuff isn't figured in at that point a lot of people think that you can just stick an evaporator on this system and that's all you know which you may be able to get by with that for a while but eventually (sighs) you know that system was originally designed for so much surge volume back to the recirculators you know there and and if you yes you start pushing that you will start running into some hellacious problems
1: you know and liquid management like from an energy perspective I don't really want to think about liquid management. I just want the vessels to do their job. Yeah. And I want there to be liquid at the coils. And I want, you know, to do the liquid subcooling wherever it's supposed to be going on. But every now and then we run into systems where exactly have been added on and added on. And all of a sudden now their vessels are so small compared to their load. They're yeah. like, uh, we're so afraid to stop this compressor and start this next one. because The vessel's going to fill completely up. Yeah. And they're like, we just have, we've been running this compressor for four years and we don't want to turn it off ever. I'm like, but it's, it's way too big to run all winter. They're like, we don't care.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Well, that is a problem. It depends on who's making the, the decisions and some like maintenance managers lean on their guys. You know, sometimes they stick a guy that that has either great leadership skills or whatever, but they they rely on the operators or their lead or whatever to get the technical information to them, and that person might not be making the best decision or have kilowatt usage in yeah. mind. Which to me, that's the first. Uh, you know, I I th- I think it's responsible. You know, the the if you I think that. You, you need to run these systems as designed. So get your MEB or your mechanical energy balance sheet, look it up, look what the pressures are or what the temperatures are supposed to be, and then make sure you're running the correct, um, you know, the, the correct pressure. Make sure that you're, you know, you're, you're doing right by that. Um, let me ask you this. Uh, and you may not have an answer, I, but I I was always curious to like, and this kind of ties back to VFDs on evaporators. It would only make sense that it is harder. Like if you had a pipe that was instead of being, you know, 25% liquid, it's 50% liquid. I would think that that would affect horsepower at the compressor, like pulling it back. And I, so that was the other thing with with VFDs on evaporators is is there any way to measure that or or is that on y'all's radar at all? Like if you're overfeeding, do you see an increase in kilowatt usage at the compressor? If you know it,
1: no. And as a matter of fact, you see lower kilowatts at the compressor because you were putting less fan power into the room. Mm-hmm. So and all that fan power, fans like a light. You know, the more lighting power you have in a room, that's just more heat in the room. So if mm-hmm. we reduce the speed on a fan, that's just less fan power in the room, which is less heat in the room. So which is less yeah, boiling. Which is just less boiling. So yeah. And and we get the kind of the magic affinity law savings from fans when we turn them at slower speed. If you turn a compressor at half speed, it uses basically half power. If you turn a fan at half speed, it uses you know, in theory, like twelve and a half percent power in practice it's probably 15% power but you get this you know you, there's a, a cubic law relationship there you get this kind of magic energy savings with fans at at part load at part speed because they're variable torque
0: mm-hmm. devices
1: the power goes way down which is why you know which is why evaporator fans save evaporator fan vfds save much save you know a decent amount of money over fan cycling Mm-hmm. It's because that kind of that magic performance at low speed, but yeah. I haven't seen it. I haven't heard. I haven't heard of liquid problems. So, let's, so I sometimes I, I wish I was paying should. more attention when I was on site. Yeah. But so, where you have a coil in a penthouse, and kind of the whole coil is above the valve group, well, then any overfed liquid just goes into the suction line, and, and it's all sloped back to the vessels and there's no problem right uh,
0: that's where i uh, there's not an uh, that's where I, I don't disagree with that but just, like even just common sense tells me like if you were to take a straw even if you sloped it back and you were constantly feeding liquid on one side and you're trying to pull in if you had nothing but vapor you know or just a little bit a of pipe. liquid it would be much easier to pull pull draw through the the yeah. hose Versus if you had that fit that straw 50% of liquid, it would take it would physically take more energy for us to pull right. it back, back.
1: You just so, you just shrunk your suction pipe. Yeah. If it's half full of liquid. Yeah. And the one that makes me want to stand on top of a roof and think about it a little more is the ceiling hung evaporators where the evaporator is, you know, six feet below the valves. Yeah. Or three yeah, feet or however. True. So now we have some suction rise. If we're overfeeding liquid, uh, I've seen kind of a dual pipe design where mm-hmm. there's like a big pipe and a small pipe. And when the flow is high, I kind I of remember how that works. But do you know what I'm talking about? There's yeah, kind of I a do. dual riser design.
0: Um, to, no, to, not to as far as that.
1: Is-
0: yeah. Well, a lot of them tra- well, at least in Freon, they trap the suction line to try to kind of, depending on how large of a rise you have. Um, but I don't, th- I don't know if they do do that on ammonia. I've never really questioned that.
1: I've seen, I've heard people talk about it. I know they do something like that, but I, that's, I don't understand it super yeah, well. I know they have, some design
0: guys. Yeah.
1: they have some tricks for getting the liquid from those ceiling hung coils back up into the suction line. Then it can all gravity drain back to the, mm-hmm. to the vessel. I
0: mean, there is even like, if you look at like a, a flooded chiller, like, or, or they have not like a, one that's got like a surge drum on top of it, those are 100% full liquid, you know, it's a liquid column all the way back up. So I, I just me thinking that that should, I mean, I would, I would, I don't know, I think that you're still planning on you, you would still have to have your hand expansion at that point. But I don't know how much liquid would be going actually back into the suction, you know, after that. That's actually a really yeah, good Yeah,
1: a flooded coil, you a flooded coil is a different animal because you got your surge drum on top. And, you know, yeah. hopefully it's only 20 or 30% full of liquid. We keep a full column of liquid down through our evaporator. Mm-hmm. But then any. You know we're kind of managing our liquid based on our surge drum level and we're just kind of keeping it down there at a third full and the only thing going back out the top of that surge drum to suction should be should be vapor yeah and the, and the coolest application the the neatest one place i've seen those is you'll have a system that's all so kind of the classic uh let's say it's a grocery store or a food service type design Mm-hmm. It's mostly. Yeah, it's it's not a production facility. It's a storage facility, and so they have a they have a big zero degree freezer. Yeah. But then they want they want a little ice cream freezer, which needs to be. I mean, people used to hold, hold ice cream at minus twenty. Yeah. Minus fifteen. And now, minus,
0: what do you recommend?
1: Well, we we see minus ten all over the country. Yeah. I haven't seen people really dab. Well. I'll keep my mouth shut about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, we see we see a lot of minus 10. Yeah. And we still see some places that have like public refrigerated warehouses. We see PRWs that have contracts for like minus 20. Okay, if that's signed in your contract,
0: yeah. Then,
1: then you better keep that. Yeah. But if you're just distributing to your own if you're just distributing internally, then you get to decide your temperature. And quite a few of those we see it at minus 10. For ice cream. But so now we have this, we have this huge minus zero degree freezer and we have this tiny little minus 10 degree freezer Mm -hmm. and they'll put a, they'll put a flooded coil in the ice cream room with a little baby compressor that isn't (laughs) even lifting to the intermediate. It just lifts up to the, to the freezer suction.
0: Mm -hmm. What? Like it discharges, like the compressor discharges into the suction.
1: The, the compressor, so to make this cheap, and to, you just put it on the roof.
0: Uh-huh. So
1: you, your compressor doesn't go to the intermediate vessel. It actually just goes from the ice cream suction, which is o- the only thing on that suction is that vessel, that surge yeah. drum sitting right above the evaporator. And then it discharges to the freezer suction. So it's let's say it's a minus 25 degree suction, uh-huh. or -20, minus minus twenty 20 degree suction, and it's discharging to a minus 10 degree suction. So it's only got 10 degrees of lift. Wow. It's only like a 20-horse compressor, little 20-horse screw up on the roof.
0: Yeah. I I mean, I've never considered – I've never seen that. I have seen – you know what? Maybe I have now that I'm thinking about it. I just wasn't paying attention to where the discharge was going, but it didn't have a condenser on it. So I bet I have seen that. Like they were like a little – penthouses with a Frick compressor in it and I just never paid attention to where it went that's I a if that co- design
1: idea I'd like to shake the guy's hand who thought yeah. of that because in, you know if it was to discharge to the inner it was to discharge to a 20 degree intermediate mm-hmm. you know it'd have to be a 60 horse compressor yeah but if you're just going to lift it from minus 20 to minus 10 I mean hell wow. a little baby little baby compressor
0: yeah, that's true. But where do you get an ammonia compressor like that? Is it? Are you talking ammonia or is it?
1: Is oh, it yeah. Freon?
0: It is oh, ammonia?
1: ammonia? Oh, yeah. They make What them. are
0: they, like bitzers or something?
1: No, they're Fricks, Fricks. and GEA and wow. same, old, same people that you see everywhere.
0: Now that I'm thinking about it, that had to have been the case because it did not have a condenser. There was, and I think it was for an ice cream room, too. So I guess I have seen that. I just didn't pay attention. Like I got, we got called out, it lost all its oil. So I had to go change out the coalescers and there was a couple of things, but I never paid attention to where, you know, I just knew that there was a compressor up on the roof, but I mean, that makes sense. I, I wouldn't imagine there would be very much load, you know, even like oil temperature and stuff like that. Like if you're, I mean, what would that be based off of pressure? So that would be like hardly nothing on the compression ratio.
1: Yeah. So let's see Well, if we were going from, if we we're going from minus 20.
0: Which would be positive pressure.
1: Would be like three and a half, four pounds. Yeah. Nine pounds. Wow. So, you know, if we were, so that's not very much lift. So you can move a lot of gas with a, yeah. with a fairly small screw.
0: That is, I mean, I've had other packages that do that. G, uh, GEA makes a, a a chiller package that they sell to like the places that um, liquefy nitrogen and oxygen and stuff like that. And, it, and uh, the air that they're taking in um, to, you know, they have like a compression expansion kind of thing. Um, I forgot what it's called, but anyways, it's a very weird process and um, it's a two stage system and they, they take the booster discharge and they, they discharge straight into the suction of the high stage compressor, which, okay. it, you know, so I've, I've seen some funky things like that, but I mean, it, it, when you do run across those things, you're just like, what in the hell is going on here?
1: <laughs> yeah, they're just smart. Cool, there's some cool ideas out there. There, there are was one, there, uh, there. was a strange compressor situation. I gotta, I'm trying to remember it, and I'll, we'll talk about it another time.
0: Yeah.
1: But I've seen several of them, and none of, they were all shut down because they all didn't work. <laughs> so we'll, you'll have to explain to me why those broke. Yeah. Um, but one thing I wanted to mention on evaporator fan VFDs. So I mean, if you're, if you're freezing French fries or hardening ice cream or have some sort of a production freezer, mm-hmm. I mean, some of those have VFDs, and they don't use them you know they just run at 60 hertz all the time Mm -hmm. and some of them don't have vfds and that's probably good because you know if you're not going to use a v if you're just going to use a vfd as a starter you might as well save your money
0: yeah i've seen that too a lot of that's based around just more inexperience. you know they either ran into an issue or had you can get into a lot of funky issues with vfds like the like the regen issues where the you know if the If the the motor is spinning faster than what the Hertz are supposed to, like you'll physically generate, like you'll get that regen uh, alarm and it'll, uh, you know, when the voltage doesn't match what that VFD says that it's supposed to, it'll kick it out every time. I chased one of those before I knew what that was for like three weeks, man. I, I finally ended up like, I was like, look, I'm going to sit and watch this thing run for the next 24 hours. I'm not, you know, because I couldn't figure out what the hell was going on, or how that it got that re. I think it's regen, isn't it? Isn't that what it's called?
1: Oh yeah, right. Uh, If if you're pulling, if you're pulling that motor along, it's going to generate power. Yeah, you're putting power back onto the grid. Your motor just became a generator, and your VFD better have some resistors to dump that energy, or you better trip it off somehow so you don't smoke it. Yeah. But yeah, so VFDs are like at, at best they're ninety what ninety seven percent efficient. So I mean, if you're just going to run something at sixty hertz, don't put a VFD on it because yeah, the cost and the and the maintenance and
0: unless it's on a compressor, I, I'm a well I, like at least ramp you know like in 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 replace of like a a soft start you know to where it's just ramping from zero to a hundred percent. I've seen that quite a bit. Not it wasn't a VFD like uh Weg's got some starters out that we've that we've put in had a lot of success um that does that it just ramp, slowly ramps it up and it doesn't it doesn't fluctuate but it's st- you know it's it's easier and really cheaper than you know if you got a soft start that goes out so you know, I've, I've
1: heard of soft starts or some kind of starters that are basically like a, a mini VFD which is probably exactly what you're talking about Yeah So it's got a much softer start and like a Y delta.
0: Yep. Yeah, it just slowly ramps them up. It doesn't, you know, but it'll take 10 seconds or 15 seconds however long it is. It's not very long, but it's you it can stop that it, that inrush of current, you know, yeah. when it whenever you first fire it up. So I like them, but they don't they're they're very easy to install and they're like especially like you know with like the DBS starters going like you can't get the DBS starters anymore or maybe you can I, I don't know, but They, um, it's a really good solution to replace a a, a starter and and they're really not that expensive. It's a good solution.
1: Cool. Do they, do they back out of the circuit once you're at 60 Hertz or are they still sitting there kicking off? Everything
0: goes through, it goes through that starter. So there's no, yeah, forever. So I, 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 but I don't, I don't, maybe they have. I don't know if they've got the, I mean, maybe they have the capabilities of being ran like a VFD, but they still just run. Like I've got two of them at a customer's of mine right now. And actually, I almost, I've got another one quoted because they're just, they're cheap and they're easy to install. And as far as what I can see, they last a good while.
1: And I mean, it's not a contactor, it's not a Y Delta starter. What do you call them?
0: I mean, I guess you would call it a soft start. It's a soft start. okay. Yeah, a, a soft start. So when I'm, t- I, yeah, and I'm talking about a Y Delta starter or something, something that has some way of taking that, um, like, old, like an old Ram starter or something like that to where it's just contactors and a bypass contactor, I, I gets rid of all of that stuff, you know, and it just slowly ramps it up. And then once it's to speed, it's fine. You know, you don't have to worry about the current or anything like that. And, and then whenever it sh- shuts it down, it just slowly ramps it down and.
1: Oh cool. And you're good. Yeah. So Yeah, there's a lot about starters and the differences. What's out there that I don't
0: starters understand. can
1: be My, my understanding I, is some starters uh stay in the circuit and like you have two percent losses forever. Mm-hmm. And some starters get the motor up to speed and then they somehow like back out of the circuit. But that's kind of I'm not. It a is like
0: a bi- you know what in all honesty i could i probably need to find someone that's a starter expert to come on the podcast because i i'm not a, a star i mean i know how to if there's an issue i know how to read a wiring diagram and and yeah uh, you know i can always find the problem but like it's i've i've never had any kind of official training on starters um which i probably should change that i think that because there is a lot of the thing is is you don't really have a lot of issues out of the starters but once one does happen yeah it, yeah you know you're just like what the starter hell?
1: goes down and you realize you can't get parts for it anymore because yeah. it's five years old then you have a problem
0: yeah most certainly well that's where those WEG starters or anybody i'm sure there's somebody else that makes them but we've had a lot of success with WEG, um and and weg has got some really good equipment out there so i i enjoy using them yeah and Dang of
1: course dude. VFDs on VFDs on condenser fans, of course, those those are pretty awesome because then you just get you don't have to cycle your fans across a 10 pound band. You can just mm-hmm. tune it and try and hit your set point and hold Dang. your set point directly. So
0: what so let's um let's talk about condenser wet bulb approach.
1: Okay, wet bulb approach. So wet bulb approach is kind of a it's an attempt to minimize total compressor and condenser power. Because mm-hmm. what we'd like to do is we'd like to run our condensing pressure wherever gives us the least amount of total compressor and condenser power. And we don't know exactly where that is. So in, in, in my mind, a perfect control system would, it would like one minute it would raise your condensing pressure a couple pounds and it would look and see what happened to total compressor and condenser power then it would lower it and it would just continually like test and hunt. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: if the load's low, maybe it raises the condensing pressure set point because if I've only, if I'm down to, you know, one small compressor, well, I don't need to run 200 horsepower worth of condenser pump and fan mm-hmm. to try and keep the, the head low for that one compressor at low load. That's kind of out of balance. Yeah. Maybe I should let my head pressure rise. And shut off a whole bunch of compressor, condenser, pump, and fan. Yeah, and keep and keep the the total compressor and condenser power down. So, and wet bulb approach is just one way of trying to do that. It says, what's my wet bulb? You know, evaporative condensers drive towards wet bulb temperature. Yep. So, usually using a, a temperature sensor and a humidity probe, calculate the wet bulb temperature, and we can, we can, that math is well known. We, we, Cascade even has a paper. We'll we'll give it to anyone who wants it, that gives you that math. Oh, okay. Here's the coefficients. If you know your relative humidity and your temperature and your elevation, it will calculate Mm. your wet bulb temperature. Yeah. Then you add an approach to that. And this is where the user gets to decide, I want to be condensing five degrees above wet bulb temperature, 20 degrees above wet bulb temperature. Uh, Usually it's somewhere between five and 20 degrees. Mm Mm-hmm is where I, what i see so you put that approach in and then so your wet bulb temperature plus your approach becomes your condensing temperature set point except nobody condenses to a temperature set point because it reacts too slow and it's you might yeah. be lifting your reliefs or something before you know you, you might not respond fast enough to have mm-hmm. the head situation so so you can you do some quick math and you convert your temperature back to a pressure and then you have a condensing pressure set point that you control your you know stage your condensers and adjust your condenser fan speeds to hit
0: yeah and i've always oh i'm sorry go ahead
1: no go no you say. It.
0: i've always thought that um like as far as like i i have i've got a couple of systems that have wet bulb control um so i and really i mean I, let me ask you this is it is the it, Uh, Cause it, it, I don't fully understand it. Like I know that it rate, like you're only going to get so much capacity at at whatever the percentage of humidity is outside, like so much evaporation. So, but is, is it, is it significantly more efficient to do it? Like if you're doing wet bulb control?
1: Um, so here's something that's almost as good as wet bulb control is kind of like seasonally adjust your condensing pressure set point. Yeah. So in the summer you set it at 125 and in the fall you set it at 100 and in the middle of the winter you set it at 90. you know you kind of seasonally adjust it if you see when the load goes away if you still still see your condenser plant running really hard then then you know your set your condensing set points too low we when the load goes away we want to see our compressor power go down and our condenser power yeah go down to to kind of to match yeah so and and wet bulb control like honestly i bet 10 percent of the time i walk into a system does it look like it's running well because somebody's put a probe in the sun or on a wall they put it on a wall where for like four hours a day the heat roaring up this wall where the sun's shining Mm -hmm. and so it's got the you know it's telling the the system to get it condensed at like 170 pounds. Yeah. And that's, it's cold day. We don't, we don't need to be at 170 pounds, but the sun's shining on that wall. Yeah. And so I've
0: had that issue.
1: Yeah. So that kind of sucks. I always try and get people to put their temperature and humidity probes right under the middle of a condenser. Yeah. It's going to be out of the rain. Mm -hmm. It's going to be out of the sun. And it's seeing the fresh air that's getting sucked into the. Yeah. Condensers,
0: mm-hmm.
1: but man, it doesn't happen all that often.
0: <laughs> Control electricians don't care about what we think.
1: As they're like, <laughs> you know what I On me? the roof, okay. Yeah, they're I, not, I, oh, They're two inches <laughs> out that wall. Like,
0: yeah. yeah, that's so funny.
1: So, um, so yeah, there are problems, practical problems like in real life, and then some people don't understand what it's supposed to do, so they just shut it off. Yes, because you can always override it and just put in a fixed pressure set point,
0: yeah, that's common. I mean, I wonder how much like because i it's not do you have systems that are running ninety pounds on the on the discharge pressure, even if evo do they not have hot gas defrost
1: so if you have hot gas defrost, your back pressure regulators are probably set at seventy five pounds, yeah, so 90, 90 pounds is probably enough if you've got ninety pounds on your hot gas main. To give 70, 75 pounds in a coil and give yourself a fifty degree defrost.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We so we see that ninety pounds is kind of uh, kind of the gold standard. So we we see plenty of places running ninety pounds all winter long, but we see lots really? of places that they can't either. Yeah. So ninety pounds is a good goal. It's fifty eight degree condensing, and if you're if you happen to have a system that runs well at that, then then you've you've made it. You've yeah, agreed. but other people got to run 100, 105 pounds or something because maybe if they get two coils that go into defrost, they can't quite hold 75 pounds in that second coil at the end of the hot gas main.
0: Yeah, that actually is the uh, one of my issues at one at a, uh, at a customer of mine. We can't run um if we I I think that and it's it's a it's a customer of yours as well. Um, and so, I mean, at least y'all went through and did an inspection at all of them and, and had, you know, gave me your recommendations, but they can't, they can't, they're, they're stuck at about 115 because of the amount of evaporators that they have and it, it completely tanks the discharge pressure. We don't have enough to, to defrost everything. Yeah. But that is that I believe that ninety pounds was the recommendation and we and they tried it, they just couldn't get it. There.
1: Yeah. So there are real limitations. You gotta wait till the weather's cold and you gotta bring the head pressure set point down slowly. Yeah. And you gotta find those real world limitations. Yeah. And if, if they can be overcome, then great. And if yeah. they can't be, you know, if it's a thousand dollars to overcome it, then let's spend the thousand dollars. Yeah. If it's a million dollars to overcome it, then I think we found our, our limit. <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah.
0: Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Dude, Steve, it was really awesome for you to come on. I'm I, bet, I don't know if you can hear that, but the dudes outside uh mowing and weed eating right. Oh. Is, so. <laughs> no, <laughs> I'm gonna go ahead and, and cut this one short. We're already over an hour, anyways. But let's let's do this again and let's yeah. do it soon. Steve, do you have a way for people to contact you?
1: uh Sure. I'm, yeah, I'm Steve Koski at Cascade Energy. Uh, Koskey, Koski K O S K I. You can also Go to CascadeEnergy.com and see what kind of links are available there. Nice. Yeah. I'm happy to field questions if anybody wants to do stuff. And interestingly enough, Josh, there was a couple of years where I was a Cress instructor. I think you talked about that at the start of the show, right? Yeah. 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 I was a Cress instructor for a couple of years, and but they wouldn't let me take the test.
0: Yeah. I remember you telling me that. That's kind of I weird. W- I
1: wanted to, but they, they had a rule against instructors taking the test because they didn't want us teaching to the okay. test.
0: Okay. That's so but weird. I never
1: got to take it. So I'm not Crest certified, but I was a Crest
0: <laughs> instructor. <laughs> so you're not Crest certified, but you taught the classes. That's so funny. <laughs> All right, Steve, it was good having you on, man. I can't wait to, um, to get you back. Cool. All right, pal. Have a good day.
1: Take care. Thanks. You See ya. Hmm.
0: Well, that was another great episode. Um, <clears throat> you know, it's I, I could go on for days when it comes to kilowatt usage. It, it's something that um, I took a liking to whenever um, I worked at a, a company that had CTs on everything. And every everything that I did, I could tell if it negatively impacted the kilowatt usage or if it helped it. Um, so it it really is important guys, you you know, just, just keep that in mind, start looking for the design sheets The the most places have what we call an MEB, a mechanical energy balance sheet. Just go get that. That will tell you what temperatures the rooms were designed at the evaporator TDs, and you can start setting up your system to run like it's supposed to. Um, so that, that really is key, uh, when it comes to operating a refrigeration system. And, and I think that that's, that's knowledge that everyone needs to be focusing on and, and trying to get as much as you can. Um, because not only is it going to make your system run better, but when you can go to your boss and say, Hey, I did this and I would like you to track the kilowatt usage or, or the reduction in it. And, you know, that's just a feather in your cap um you know everybody is trying to find a, a more profitable way to run their business so if you can cut um you know the, the electrical expenses you are definitely going to be um you know it, your your boss's favorite and or whatever it may be but all right fellows that is all the time i have for today Um, I appreciate y'all listening. Please don't hesitate to reach out if you want to come on the show or if you have questions or if you think I'm an idiot and just want to tell me about it. Um, I will probably ignore you, but I'm down for anything. All right, boys, y'all take care and, and gals and gals.